You're listening to Lost and Sound, a podcast exploring music, identity, and the future. believe that one of the best ways we come together is through music and through this series I'm looking at how music can and is bringing us together now and in the future. From my base in Berlin we'll be meeting artists from a range of disciplines from all across the world who are drawing on music right now, some already exploring new ways of doing this. Today I had a chat with King Brit. Hello, how are you doing? You're looking bloody lovely today. Hope you don't mind me saying. I am along the canal in Kreuzberg, in West Berlin, in Germany. You may be able to hear in the distance the the piano player that comes out here on afternoons who, who serenades all of us souls with his beautiful music. Quite often it's of a Billy Joel-esque variety. Billy Joel's definitely one of these artists that I'm a little bit like, uh, and then I hear, and then I hear a Billy Joel song, and I'm like, he wrote that one, didn't he? That one, that song is amazing. And so thank you to the pianist across the other side of the canal from me for illuminating me to that. On today's show, we joined Berlin with San Diego, California, to speak to none other than the legendary polymath King Brit. Producer, DJ, engineer and educator, King Brit is a true musical polymath, playing a key role in the development and dialogue around electronic music for over 30 years, from early days as a DJ at Philadelphia's legendary Silk City. He set up the vastly influential Ovum Records with Josh Wink in 1994, whilst in the same era, he was the original DJ for Diggable Planets. He's remixed Tori Amos, Solange, Wendy and Lisa, and Miles Davis, and collaborated with Mad Lib and Della Soul, amongst artists. Right now, he's taken this lifetime into the realms of education, running the course Blacktronica, Afrofuturism, and electronic music at UCSD in San Diego, researching and honoring the people of color who have pioneered groundbreaking genres within electronic music. And so far, it's featured guest speakers like Honey Dijon, Goldie, and Questlove. I was super excited to have this chat. Right, I'm recording. So, hope everything was good for your weekend. How, how was it? Good? All right. Um, it was it was good actually. Thank you. It was very very chilled. Um, in Berlin, we're still oh, you're very, in Berlin. Very oh. 
I'm in Berlin. Yeah, so you you have a bit of a connection with Berlin yourself, don't Dude, you? Dude, come on, man. I love Berlin, man. I was just talking to um one of my best friends. Am I too loud? Am I all right? Level? No, this is absolutely perfect. Okay. Thank you. So Monty Luke, do you know Monty? He runs um, Black Catalog. Yeah, he runs the label. I, Black. I don't know him, no. Yeah, he he just moved to Berlin last year. Like, as soon as he got there, then the pandemic happened. And, like, it's crazy. <sighs> but, of course, I know all the Ableton guys and then Jazzanova. And mm-hmm. I've been going to Love Parade, you know, when Love Parade was on, like, the early years. You know, just Trezor. I mean, Berlin was kind of like a second home in a way you know i almost moved there actually i thought about oh. moving there yeah yeah that's amazing and do you, you played bergheim as well oh yeah yeah i mean oh <laughs> I, I mean i did there so i played the main room twice one as saturn never sleeps with the old project and then one is um it was part of a festival and then panorama like maybe four times or whatever yeah, that's always great. And then um, Watergate. I mean, there's so many clubs, but Watergate. I love Watergate, actually. And I like the second room where you can see the RCA sign across the river. Yeah, I love Watergate. Watergate was great. <laughs> yeah, I think Watergate is quite unusual in Berlin as well, just in the way that it does open out across the river and you can totally yeah. you feel like you're inside and outside at the same time. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I see you got Angela <laughs> on the wall look back there. Pardon, sorry? You have Angela Davis on the wall. I used that picture. Oh yes, yeah. That's in my <laughs> class, in my Blacktronica class. I I use that picture because um, you know, she went to UCSD. So she studied here for a year, um, and it was right around when that picture was taken. So, yeah, 72, I think. But anyway, oh, wow. yeah, yeah. I, I, I have it up there as a sort of, um, um, I, I think it was just after, I hope you don't mind me saying after last May, it, it became a thing to kind of remind myself constantly to keep questioning, really. Oh, and yeah, okay. Perfect person <laughs> to have up there, man. Yeah. <laughs> and and it, so it's kind of become a thing of like, sort of also me saying that I'll never, like, I never want to be sure and know the answers, but just to keep open and keep questioning Always. and keep listening. Really. Yeah. Always the student. <laughs> Always the student, which kind of brings me on to, first question really and so you you have now um for some time entered the realms of academia yourself yeah it's wild man like i had no (laughs) i had no idea that this would happen you know um what well basically a friend of mine who was a friend of someone here at ucsd uh, she got a tip like yo there's there's this position opening and I feel like you would be perfect for this position. I was like, like, I never thought about being an educator, even though now that I look back on my life, I've always been educating, right? But you don't think about it in that context when you're an artist and you're out there making a living completely from your art. And so, but I had done a workshop for this person. And, uh, you know, she was like, you're such a good, you know, whatever. And so she was like, you should apply for the position. 
I was like, yeah. And then my girlfriend at the time, she was like, you should do it just to see, A, to get your CV together, but just to see all your accomplishments kind of in one place. Dude, my CV was so thick. Like, <laughs> and to to see how much I've done over the 35 years, 35 plus years being in the business, it's really wild. But then also to see that how the career my career has shifted from being an artist to being a curator as well just adding on and moving towards academia but not knowing really that that was the thing but the last thing i'll say so my aunt passed away so she she's from she lived in san diego for 50 years and so i used to come visit and everything and she passed away Christmas 2018. So I wrote down, New Year's Eve, I always write down what I want to manifest. So I was like, I want to move west. I want to work with young people. I want to live near the beach. Wow. So I feel she, and she was academic. I feel her spirit guided this direction to academia. And I love it so much, man. Like, I can't believe I waited this long. Yeah. That's such a beautiful story. And do you feel like, well, you say you can't believe you waited this long. It was this life's journey that made you a teacher. Exactly. Because, you know, the position was either PhD or, you know, your, your experience, you know, mm. and I'm still in it. I'm still producing and, you know, well, hopefully traveling again soon. And so I think academia is really shifting to get people that are actually doing it and in it. I mean, everyone here is doing it, but you know what I mean? It Not necessarily based on PhD because the experience is, is um, sometimes more, it's more base it's more rooted in in reality what's happening now and in the ever changing you know how the business is always changing and that sort of thing so yeah were you a bit nervous before about the kind of the more kind of what you presume would be more like a kind of a lecturer kind of role of did you feel like oh my god you know like before you realized that you had accumulated all of this experience um the other side of it which is the sort of we view professors as being people that have been in academia for a long time. Did you feel that there were big hurdles that you had to no accomplish listen, today? As soon as I got here, so it'll be two years in July. I've done more in two years than you know I imagined at all. You know, new course, like I created a new course. I've had all these amazing guests that were from they're friends of mine but they're also i mean goldie for hero you know they're all pioneers in electronic music and just to be able to kind of bring all my my abilities of curating of organizing of music all in one place it took me a little bit to kind of get my footing but it actually was really a natural progression and I feel, I do feel that being, you know, so when I first started, this was actually pre-pandemic, 
we were in the studios you know it was just amazing like all of us doing our thing and you know me showing what i do anyway so it's me just explaining what i do anyway in my way but when i first started like the first few weeks you know i was like well why am i here because you know i have like these colleagues like tom herb and miller puckett who started at max msp and tom herb who you know made the morphogene and the mimeophone like modules i'm like but then i realized like i just they want me for me i have to be me as authentic as possible and so once you get over that kind of imposter syndrome i guess it's called then it's smooth sailing you know and it's also when you think about lectures and that sort of thing it's also a performance right you know, so if you think of it as you're in front of an audience, you have to keep them captivated, but also educate. Like it's like DJing in a way or playing live, you know, that's how if you think about it that way on that level, then your your authenticity just comes out and you relate, you resonate with the, the students quickly and yeah, it's fantastic, man. And then, but once we went to Zoom, man, Zoom, I mean, it was like, in the beginning, everyone's trying to figure figure things out and all. We got it pretty quick, just because this is our thing, right? But I don't think Blacktronica would have been, would have moved so quickly if it wasn't for zoom just because you know we couldn't fly in all these people and we wouldn't have thought about zoom at all if the pandemic hadn't if we weren't forced to and so out of the all the negative things that <clears throat> came with the pandemic this actually was a blessing I mean, Zoom is an incredibly uh, borderless medium, isn't it? That's a fantastic way to put it. Yes, absolutely. Can you tell me a little, I mean, because you mentioned about Blacktronica, and um, can you describe what Blacktronica, the course, is about oh, yeah. and, and so, what it educates? So Blacktronica, uh, it's Music 19, Afrofuturism in Electronic Music you know, paying homage and also researching all the heroes of color, pioneers of color that have contributed to the advancement of electronic music. So, you know, we study everything from the the Dogon tribe in Mali to Sun Ra, of course, uh, and jazz fusion. So we've had Julian Priester in and, you know, uh, Dexter Wanzel is fantastic. Then you know, we go into uh, funk, of course, right? Uh, drum and bass, how, oh, Chicago House, Detroit Techno, drum and bass. You know, all the all the very powerful and forward-thinking genres that have come out of the socio-political context of black culture, you know, and the African diaspora. And I feel that that was missing here. And... You know, when I got here, I was like, they're not, no one's talking about this. And it's the most, it's the most important 
conversation that needs to be put into the canon of academia. And uh, so when I brought this up and I presented it to the department, they were like, yes, totally. 100% behind it. Boom, boom, boom. It was a course within maybe um, three months, two months, and then spring came and we were off and running. But that's exactly when the pandemic ha- happened. So the, oh. the all the classes were on, started on Zoom, and now mm. I'm keeping it on Zoom. And the reason is the way I present it is very immersive. And of course, this music is very bass heavy. And so required for the class, good headphones, you know, the way I design the class is for Zoom. Like it's very captivating, lots of visuals, but the sound, the sound, it's about the sound. So if you were in a lecture hall, you would lose that immersiveness. Yeah. And I've been thinking about different ways, like maybe we could use the, remember those silent disco headphones with the phone. Oh yeah. yeah. But now that the class it's available for all UCs across California now. Mm-hmm. So it's it's going to be really big class in fall. And so it's just going to it'll be better in Zoom. Yeah. And then the archive that I've created wow, it's crazy. And I guess you saw the Google Arts and Culture mm-hmm. um feature you know, we're we're talking in the talks now about partnering with Google Arts and Culture and Blacktronica to bring a little bit more of the pedagogy uh, to the masses. So, but that's, you know, lots of legal things there. So we, we're taking our time and seeing how that will pan out. Yeah. Do you, do you have like, I mean, because you've had some incredible guests on as well. Oh, on as well. Like, are, are there any kind of moments that kind of come to you now where where listening to the guests, you just kind of have a feeling of just, oh, my God, this is great. I mean, uh, I'm sure there were loads, but does anything come into your head? I will say first that every single guest has been just wow. Like, I first of all, the respect that they have for me to come and take their time out and do it. You know, everyone from Questlove to Jill Scott, Jazzy Jeff, Julian Priester, Goldie, For Hero, Digo, you know, everyone. It's just been an honor to to actually have a platform to discuss these things, but also, you know, I have a personal relationship with all of them. And to be able to bring that storytelling into the fold as well, it's such a treat for the students. Um, So all the artists have been fantastic. Now, I can say there are a few artists that really resonated heavily with the class, and the class was super excited. So one of those artists was, uh, I mean, the class was always excited. <clears throat> but extra and number one so i'll, I'll say like the top three right okay and amazing hopefully no one gets upset but this is this is let's say crowd reaction this is like mm. class reaction the aftermath of it so you know they always have to write papers or do 
some sort of assignment around the guest, ask questions, whatever. So we have these discussion groups. And so, and then the, the final, you know, they, they pick one of the artists that, and that resonated with them. And, you know, I don't want to give too much because they might be, because the assignment, it's a really good uh, final. And so I'm giving you the top three that resonated heavily with the class and many papers were written on or reactions or like, you know, residual like excitement. So number one would be Honey Dijon. Like, mm. yeah. And I've known Honey for a long time, but wow. Like, I mean, I expected a really good interview, but this was like beyond my whole, I was like, wow, this is really like, she really touched on a lot of amazing subjects and, you know, she was between Chicago and New York. So, and Europe. And so to, to give all of those points of view from her vantage point was fantastic and resonated heavily with, uh, with the class, especially with, uh, our female contingency within the class, like super excited. Uh, the second artist, that resonated heavy was Santo Gold. So, you know, I've known Santi. I mean, I think I met her at 17 years old. You know, we've known each other for a long time. So we had that history, but also, you know, she, you know, being that she went to Wesleyan and, you know, she, she comes from an academic family. So, you know, she was also bringing a whole different point of view as an artist, but as an artist who kind of grew up in academia as well. So really um, powerful quotes and words from Santi, like, wow, like really. And, you know, she was in many different iterations of the music business. She worked for Sony, you know, before she was an artist, you know. So she had uh, a few different strategies that she discussed uh, but she also produced and wrote you know, or she wrote uh, most of Reese the artist Reese R.E.S. that album before her album and you know her hand in production with Doc McKinney from Estero on that record so she's coming to to it from all these different vantage points and also her relationship her f- friendship with M.I.A. You know, and so the class, you know, very young class, too. So they can relate more to that sound, Mm -hmm. that really uh, powerful sound switch, you know. So it was very, very good. And I mean, I expected it to be great, but wow, it was really like, okay, sorry. (laughs) Um, I mean, there's so many, but... One personally for me, and it definitely resonated with with a lot of students. Was it was two together? Like I had, I had many classes that were. I had a whole round table. Like I had like one class was Carl Craig, Ash Lauren, Juan Atkins, DeForest Brown, Jen and Kiru, all in one, and Wajid all in one class. Uh, that was a good one. But um, I'll say the Nightmares on Wax and Miss Tallulah May, who is a beat maker from 
the Netherlands, right? Mm. Right outside of Amsterdam, who's like on the rise. He's killing it right now. And I like to bring in, you know, legends, but also new people that are on the rise, you know, like we're having mm. um, a fest mini festival this week. I'll give you a pass. It's on Thursday. Oh, thank you. I saw that online. It looks yeah. amazing. I was going to ask that. Yeah, thank Wednesday you. and Thursday. So mm. it's our first little mini festival, and it should go really smooth. Um, and, you know, it's virtual, so streaming or whatever. Mm. But, uh, you know, it's the first foray into kind of that, bringing it to a larger audience. But regardless, Nightmares on Wax, wow. Like, that's, George is my homie for years, you know. But to learn more about leads was really great. Because I knew, like, Ralph Lawson. I just actually did Ralph's show. You know, I knew the house side of things. But I always was a fan of Warp. And so to hear, yeah, so to hear that story, the stories of, you know, George, the early years of Nightmares on Wax, when, you know, all kind of the, the bleep, the bleep movement was happening in the early nineties. And, you know, I was ordering those records at tower records when I was working there, you know? So it was like this kind of full circle stories, but it was Miss Tallulah May that really took it to the next level as far as a really fresh perspective on beat making. And, you know, she's dollless. Like she doesn't really use the computer to make music. And so, she uses an old school mentality with new ideas, you know, it's beautiful, beautiful. That's amazing. And I love it when things come full circle like yeah. that as well. And um, I, I, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but just an observation that I feel sometimes it's like with the course, do you feel that there has been a certain amount of whitewashing of electronic music in the past? And- oh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, you know, I feel that, you know, especially in a, in modern electronic music, EDM and in all of this, in, I did a interview with Electronic Beats, actually Berlin, that's, mm. that, that, you know, it was all about kind of touching on that subject of whitewashing in electronic music, uh, in present day. Um, yeah, it's always been, and it's definitely a, a kind of a colonist idea when it comes to these kind of gatekeepers in the magazines and who gets on the cover and who represents, you know, there's a, there's a huge manipulation of who created what. And, you know, they, they put certain people at the forefront when, you know, the originators are barely getting paid, you know, they're not even on festivals and that sort of thing. So, this awareness has happened uh, like there's this huge awareness and movement that has, that has become the forefront of what's happening now. And I see a shift, you know, I definitely see a shift. Um, We discussed this a lot actually with honey, honey Dijon as well. Um, But it's so important to have a course like this and more courses popping up because, you know, we have to, really focus on the truth the Mm. truth will always win and you know where is this music coming from you know and also the young people you know my students who are fantastic they don't know 
they just don't know the history. It, it, they haven't, it's nothing to do with, you know, it's what's presented to them. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's not the same culture as like when we were younger, you know, we would dig deeper and try to find, you know, there was a mystery around these artists and we were trying to find out more. Whereas now there's so much and so much access that it's hard to kind of sort through it all. You know, and yeah. so, you know, when your students, they're dealing with class, dealing with home life, dealing with just their own politics, you know, they don't, there's no time to kind of sort through. So it's important to have classes like this and like show the history like, Lil, I know you like, you know, Tiesto, but really it's coming from, you know, the origins of Chicago House. Detroit techno, how that went to Europe, how that transformed the sound, how Detroit techno was the the soundtrack for the fall of the Berlin Wall and for all the young people there. Like that was the music that, you know, that was part of a revolution. And then Trezor came out of that, hard wax. You know, you can go into all the history and then they really have a deeper appreciation for the music. And, uh, yeah, it's really beautiful to see. But as far as whitewashing, yeah, it's always been. And there's an article that just came out in Dweller that really focused on computer music, which I'm in the computer music department. Uh, and it was interesting because, you know, like, you know, I'm a huge fan of George Lewis, but there's certain things I didn't know from mm -hmm. reading the article. And I went deeper in and like, wow, okay, so I'm going to present you know, that writer, I'm sorry, I don't have his name written uh, right now, but you can look at That's it. okay. We can. Yeah. 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 I want to have him in class and, and kind of mm. discuss, you know, why he wrote it. And, and, um, you know, his research was, it was fantastic. It opened my eyes to some things that I didn't really know as well. So, you know, we're always students, we're always learning. And, um, mm. and so, you know, one thing about computer music and what was going on back then was access. Like you could look mm -hmm. at Halim El Dab from Egypt who, you know, he was the first to start, you know, tape looping and manipulation in, in Cairo, but they didn't have the, you know, the press on it and all, you know, mm -hmm. whereas it, you know, Pierre Schaefer and the whole, the whole, uh, music concrete crew in France, you know, they had all the access to everything, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there's always that access, which even now, even today, like access is number one for getting the word out. Access is the number one gatekeeper as well. And I mean, what, what you're saying there was amazing because you just told me something I didn't know. And I, I, I kind of, connected what you're saying like the whole thing of that Pierre Schaefer had the whole of Western academia on 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 his on his side but you know as, as a sort of uh, as a, a mechanism for for the history that I believed in until about a minute ago <laughs> <laughs> well listen the history you know I don't think Pierre like knew what Halim was doing two years ago mm. he might have but, you know, location, you know, that didn't come out till later that Halim had done it when 
when Halim went to Columbia University, then, you know, all this research started to come out and all his history started to come out. They just did a festival, I guess, a few weeks ago on his whole life. And it was like a 24-hour festival. I think it was based in London. Uh, you know, but it was all, you know, streamed or whatever. You can probably look it up. But, you know, it was just like things were happening at the same time. And I don't think I don't think at that time there was any sort of, you know, we don't talk about him or whatever. It just was access. Yeah. He's in Cairo. Like there just wasn't conversation around that. That was even more avant garde there than it was in France. And then the radiophonic workshop coming out of that, like the ideas coming back to the UK, you know, it just was access. Like they're just brothers, brothers and sisters weren't right there. You know, it's just the way it was. I really love what you're saying about access and connection. And I wanted to sort of go back into the past, your past, if that's okay, for yeah, a little bit. Like, um, I've heard some lovely stories about how you got into DJing at your dad's barbershop. Oh, yeah. Um, and, yeah. and this is in Philly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, that, um, it feels like such a, an evocative image to be a young child and get control of music to play to people you know at, at a young age what did that feel like having this kind of access and, and kind of uh, creative responsibility trusted well given to you so yeah, that's funny yeah so my parents my mom was a homemaker so she took care of me my dad worked two jobs but he owned a barbershop and you know, they were record collectors, right? So they, not like, you know, super geeky collectors, but they, mm-hmm. they, they had two crazy collections. Like my mom, all about, she knew Sun Ra, but also all about collecting the more avant-garde jazz, you know, and vocals, mm-hmm. right? So Dee Dee Bridgewater, all the way to Art Ensemble of Chicago. You know, that that's the span Bitches Brew, I remember, you know, when we first got the vinyl, you know, at, at, at the house. And it's just like, wow, look at this cover. And, you know, you're little like, wow. And so that's my mom's side. But my dad is all funk and James Brown. So I had the best of both worlds. And so my dad, every Saturday, we would go to uh, 56 in Chester Avenue. It's near our house. There were two record stores up there. And then. You know, we'd buy some 45s, whatever it was new. They would give us a little, some free records as well. And then it was my job, not every week, but, you know, it was like a kind of a grooming thing. I was like five or six, you know, play the new records, Michael Jackson, whatever. Here's how you do it. Pick the needle up, you know. And so after a while, you start to see how music affects people's reactions in the barbershop. And you we only had one turntable. It wasn't mixing or nothing. It was just like one after another. And I was like, wow, that's really kind of cool. If I play Michael Jackson, everyone's happy. If I play Stevie Wonder, uh, Inner Visions, people get kind of melancholy and, you know, dreamy. and You know what I mean? So you start to see these effects. But I never thought about DJing 
as a profession or anything until um, I worked at Tower. And so I'm working at Tower. I'm buying 12-inch vinyl for Tower. I'm the buyer there. And so all these DJs started coming in. Um, and in high school, you know, you make mixtapes and stuff, but nothing professional. But my friend DJ Blake, Boy Blake, he was big in Philly, one of my best friends. And his roommate was Josh Wink. So they used to come in. And then my best friend growing up was DJ Dazia. And so they had started a um they had started a collective called Vagabond. And the cl- it would move from club to club and they were playing like everything that from house to indie rock and, you know, the lyric and whatever, and which I was buying for the store. So they would come in, buy stuff. But we had tons of stores in Philly, so I was kind of a special because I the way I curated, I got things that other stores wouldn't get. So you know it was like each store had its own thing, and so you know around that time I did my first DJ gig because I just wanted to play music out in a club. You know I was getting at that age, and so I played at a club called Revival. It was a lot of fun after hours club. So it was just like it went late and. I played with a gentleman called Bobby Startup, who was one of the legendary DJs from Philly. And he founded the Stray Cats. So if you know the group, the Stray Cats. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, yeah. He's the founder of the Stray <laughs> that was Cats. When I, that was back when I was jumping onto things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so Bobby, you know, I learned a lot from Bobby. But then my vag- the Vagabond crew, they were like, yo, you know, King, you should join vagabond and you know that's where i kind of cut my teeth as far as like learning the ropes of mixing and that sort of thing i knew a little bit but that's where i really learned it was just like throw them in the pool you know (laughs) and and um from there i got a job so this new club was opening now it's a landmark in philly called silk city and that was my first residency like 15 years 20 years like that was my spot yeah and it's still to this day like the spot you play silk city it's small as it only legally holds like a hundred some people but we would have line out the door it was incredible and actually diplo and mark ronson they took the name for one of their pseudonyms called silk city so even the font is exactly like because he used to play he played there in later years he when he lived in philly he played there as well but i don't know if they ever give credit to that's where it's from like silk city no i I didn't know that no what was the um because i mean people talk a lot about detroit and they talk a lot about chicago um but what was the vibe in philly like for you you know was there a sort of like we're kind of talking when you're at tower of work records it's like the early 90s what was the what was the kind of feeling like for you well you know like philly you know the history i mean you know it's crazy the history of philly and the the sound of philadelphia was disco you know that Mm. was gamble and huff were the they're still two of the greatest songwriters, singer, or so not singers, but songwriters of our mm-hmm. time, and producers. So everything from Teddy Pendergrass to Lou Rawls to LaBelle, Patti LaBelle to 
you know, Jean Carn, you know, all the disco classics, the OJs, you know, for the love of money, all that stuff. Like that's Philly. Like Philly was, that was the DNA for disco, you know, and also the orchestration. Like we were the first to bring in, we as in Philly, Gamble and Huff, the orchestra, Philadelphia orchestra would moonlight a lot of the players would moonlight and play on all of these disco records soul disco records and so that's where the string situation started then later of course south soul which was jersey used a lot of the same string players uh joe tarsia was you know over at sigma sound so philly had a sound early 70s and then of course elton john came over did philadelphia freedom you had bowie did young americans in philly you know people were coming to philly for that soulful orchestrated sound and so growing up that was the dna of what we listened to on radio all over in the stores everywhere you go was the philly sound now how did that sound shift over the years it had a lot to do with us it had a lot to do with you know myself josh wink dj dazia um ovum records uh the rave scene you know so as electronics became uh more accessible for us you know at that time this was i'm saying around 88 Mm. we were you know we were in temple university we were in college and we were all fearless man like we were just like we're here in like 808 state you know we just got the white label a new build and mm. you know we're hearing stuff from europe that they're re redoing what was going on in chicago and i kind of gravitated a little bit more to the european side sound more so than say you know the chicago acid house sound even though i had pierre in class and it was such a pleasure and i love of course what ron hardy his mixtapes and that sort of thing i loved everything don't get me wrong but there was something about gerald which reminds me i have to email him because i've been chasing gerald for a minute to get him a guy in, called gerald yeah to get him in yeah. class but I just, I don't know. I just couldn't get in touch. And then a friend of mine is a good friend of his. And then Gerald just emailed me the other day, like, Hey, I'm here. I'm like, Oh shit. But but that's a lovely thing to pop up in your inbox. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) We brought him to Philly. This was maybe 91. I want to say maybe it was 90 actually, but we brought him to Philly because Voodoo Ray was massive, like for us, mm. man, you know. And so he had also done a book, or he did a soundtrack to a book called Trip City. So we had that. Anything Gerald, we had, right? So it was something about what Gerald was doing. It was something about what Nightmares on Wax was doing, war, early warp. I don't know. I just loved it, that sound, you know. And so we were incorporating that into our sets early Aphex, you know, mm. analog bubble bath, all that stuff. Didgeridoo. We were incorporating that into our sets in Philly. And so, you know, it shifted the Philly sound as far as uh, 
the clubs, right? So, you know, it went from disco and then, you know, you had DJs like Philip Dickerson and, um, of course, Bobby and Ricky Lee. They were playing a, a barrage of different sounds, but Philip Dickerson really playing Deep House and early iterations of House. And then later, T. Alford, I don't know if you know his name, but he grew up in Newark and he went to school at he went to temple and he was playing all the New York house or new Newark house. So mm-hmm. everything, the Burrell brothers, Tony Humphreys. And so he used to take me up to Zanzibar, like every other week. I was like, dude, be there for eight hours here in Tony, seeing alternate, seeing Don Juan, like all these groups, Jamanda. And he was bringing them to Philly. Mm-hmm. And so, that was like the pinnacle shift into house him and Sean Diaz, who he went to university of Penn and these two shifted the whole sound in Philly. But then it was us that shifted it more electronic. So they were playing more of the organic house stuff. And then we were playing the more electronic things. And so that's how that kind of house dance electronic scene changed in philly that's a really lovely way that you describe that as well and and i think during that time or maybe a little bit before um you were your discovery into kind of creating sounds yourself and textures i've heard a lot about like you using uh doing things like kind of pre-sample or pre-access to samples with tape decks um (laughs) was that your first point of uh, was that your point of entry for you using tape decks I, you know, so it's another incredible guest that we had in Blacktronica was Hank Shockley, right? I don't know Hank Shockley. Yeah, no, he, sorry. from the Bomb Squad, he produced all the Public oh. Enemy. He's in. Oh, the, right. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and everything. Mm. Yeah. So we had Hank and good friend of mine as well. And we were just talking, you know, we talked heavily about the pause tapes, um, which was big then because, you know, we couldn't afford samplers and so you would make these pause tapes you would find the beat you like so you let it play then you pause it rewind the beat unpause there's you know so you had these kind of weird loop tapes that you know you had rappers rap over or you know you just putting ideas down or whatever and that was the you know i did a few of those but then at when I started working at Tower, I could afford a sampler, right? And so I got a sampler, and you know I went into I had a really cheap sampler, which was the SK One, which I still have. That was the first foray foray into it. But then I got an S Ten Roland sampler, and that was it, dude. Like it was on after that, man. So I I did a little bit of pause tapes, but. The timing, because I got that job at Tower, I was able to to get a sampler. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You're talking about the kind of progression there from from tapes to the SK ones, mm. and 
I remember like, I think I had an old Akai and it okay. took me about two days. I think this is like the late nineties when I sort of joined on board production. It took me about two days to kind of get a beat right at the time and the oh, yeah. rendering and the kind of the frustration <laughs> that came with, but with you it. Know but what, at the same though? time, yeah. I'm sorry. No, I was saying, you know what though? Like that. Yeah. Well, finish i'm sorry to interrupt finish no no please do i I like a good interruption it's nice because there's a flow it's nice well when you said that you know that's something that we were talking about with hank as well like and ronnie size right and so we were saying how the beats like if you listen to any public enemy album especially the first two you know they they program that stuff live they didn't use sequencing so all the beats they played live down the track. And so there's this push and pull. Or if you listen to DJ Shadow album, Introducing, which is brilliant on sampling, there's a push and pull because it's not perfect. Now, you got Ableton and everything. Everything's so perfect. So I try to teach my production students the the magic of imperfection, you know, and find that groove and don't quantize. And That's why when Dilla came out, he revolutionized, changed everything because everyone was so quantized. And he's like, take it off the grid. You're human. Put your humanness into it. You know what I mean? I think that, which kind of, you kind of answered my next question in the way with that actually as well as just, but I was wondering, are there any tips without wanting to kind of ruin what people could learn on your course for having to do the course that, that you feel that people can just take on board to humanize the algorithm, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I love um, Ableton. I love oh. Native Instruments. Oh, I think they're all course. amazing products. Absolutely. But at the same time, they do allow you to go off the grid if you do want to, oh, you know. Yeah. And, um, totally. So what, what is what is the thing that kind of just, is there a way people can kind of set themselves free a little bit from these instincts to just go with what is there? Well, there's a safety net. You know, quanti- quantization is a safety net for those who, you know, are just learning. But also, you know, for dance music, dance music is pretty, mm. for DJs, it's pretty, um, at least the, the kick drum and the claps and should be kind of on the grid just for mixing purposes and that sort of thing. But everything else, mm. take the grid off, get loose, you know. And it's just something that you have to teach or people need to know. We talk about access again. It's like knowing that you can go off the grid. Some people don't tell you you can go off the grid. You can go off the grid. You know what I mean? Turn it off. Turn off quantizing and get busy. You know, keep practicing. It's an instrument. Think of it as an instrument and then your whole mindset will change. So that's why I like controllers like push is phenomenal like oh my god you can do anything you know ableton all of these daws are just tools to get your ideas out and get the music out they're just tools but they have it's so deep i mean i i teach ableton of course right but i learn something new like every week i'm like oh i didn't know that could happen you know, especially with Max for Live and all these kind of all these people from this community all around the world making these incredible plugins, mm. pushing the boundaries of what 
this program can do. It's just crazy to see it, man. It's just knowledge. Knowing yeah. you can go off the grid. That's all. Everyone who's listening, go off the grid. Go off the grid. That's amazing. And I think there's always been this kind of massive musical advancements have been made when people mm. have not handled equipment like totally. how the instruction manuals tell them to. Listen, man, the whole Blacktronica course, every single artist we talk to, especially older artists, you know, we're talking to uh, Goldie, everybody, like, no one was reading the manual. Come on, man. We didn't read the manual. We were just trying to figure it out. We wanted to get the sound out. Sometimes we didn't even have the manual because, like, Pierre, um, we had Robert Owens. They were talking about how they, and, of course, Detroit, they all shared equipment, you know. And so, like, Juan, Juan Atkins was like, yeah, we, I would lend somebody, you know, maybe Kevin or whatever or Derek a drum machine, but don't use my pattern, you know, but everyone was trying to figure out their own sound using the same machines. And that's, there's a magic in that, you know, it's like everyone has Ableton, what's your sound, what's your unique sound. And a lot of that comes from not reading the manual. And like Pierre said, he's like, we just started turning knobs and we were getting these sounds because the 303, which Pierre is known for, of course, uh, creator of the Acid House sound, the 303 was a bass machine, basically, to accompany organists, you know? That's what it was made for. But then Pierre and them were just twisting knobs because they didn't know what they were doing. And it was like, oh, snap. And it also brings us to today's, you know, uh, culture you know, you had everyone from Flying Lotus, no such thing. Everyone was using compression in a way that no one was using because they didn't know what they were doing at the time. And so when we had Daddy Kevin, you know, from Low End Theory and Alpha Pup and all, you know, he was just like, yeah, they just, they didn't know. But then my job as an engineer and mastering engineer was to take what they've done and try and make it the best it can to for everyone to hear on a system you know and so that became the sound that sound changed music the la beat scene sound changed the way everyone makes music man everything and that even changed the way you think about edm Skrillex, all of that, they were influenced by that because the way they were over-compressing things, it's huge. It's amazing how these things just grow. Yeah. Like that. They leave their source and they, they end up becoming they end up becoming like just, just how we see things. Totally. How we hear things. Like the S950 was the first to do time stretching for a sample. That's how drum and bass came. Mm. For Hero, <laughs> stretching samples goldie stretching samples beyond recognition it's crazy man it's good and i'm um, just one last question if yeah, that's yeah. okay um um what how do you feel about um is there something optimistic that we can feel about the future that you're you're feeling at the moment you know what what is oh. 
because uh, there's so there's so many different vibes going on all of the time. But you know, if we were just going to pick one possible future strand vibe, um, what what is there something that you're feeling? You know, I I don't want to. That's that's one of the problems, right? We we tend to put things in a box, right? Like as mm. soon as there's a sound, okay, that's that sound. What I like about what's happening now. It's a revolutionary time because because of quarantine, a lot of producers, a lot of uh, known producers, but then a lot of unknown producers, the the playing field has become kind of level. And a lot of producers, especially electronic dance music producers, have they most of them love all types of music, right? But they got put in a box because, oh, they had a hit dance song and they could only do, they felt they could only do that. But being in quarantine, you got people doing, you know, ambient records or they're just going kind of in a direction that normally they wouldn't go because they're, they're, they have a different audience. And also mm-hmm. they have time, right? Because when you're out, you're touring you don't have time to sit with yourself, reflect, and then have that reflection come out in the music. So now they have time to sit and reflect. And then you have a lot of the new producers who their bedroom producers who are seeing this, some of their heroes or people that they follow are changing their direction sonically, which they feel, Oh wow, I want to change my direction sonically or, the other thing is, the other part from the other result of quarantine is that these new upcoming producers have created this beautiful community, especially on Instagram. It's crazy to see all the modular electronic producers, but then also like we had in class, we had DiBiase in class who his whole beat making community on Twitter is unbelievable it's it's it reminds me of my space the early days when fly low mm. ross g like everybody was and so you're having all these new beat makers coming out and now with koala which is a it's a really affordable app is 4.99 but it acts just like a 404 drum machine like mm. it's the access is there so now you got kids like a 10 years old making these crazy beats and so people are breaking the rules. They're sampling anything. So you have this whole sample library online. And so right now is a revolutionary time. Like, I don't know what the sound is going to be. And I don't want to know. I just want, I mean, I want to know what the sound is, but I don't want to know if there's a term or whatever. I just want to mm. feel it. You know what I mean? Like I just want to feel it. I don't want to just like have this marketing thing. Like I just want to feel it and be a part of it. You know, like to have DiBiase in class was fantastic. And, you know, so many of beat makers that are in my other classes came and they just were like, yo, this DiBiase, you know, he's the, he's our Goldie or he's, you know what I'm saying? Like he's their Goldie or whatever it is, you know, the new generation. So, it's just great, man. It's a really powerful time. You can even hear it in artists like Rosalia, 
FK Twigs, like really pushing Sonics. You know, Bjork's always done that, but now you have these new kind of R&B artists pushing Sonics. You have new hip hop artists pushing Sonics. I mean, Astro World is a brilliant album by Travis Scott. James Blake on there. You know, it's lots of crossover. You know, James Blake coming from this kind of very unique approach to electronic music production and then have and also a great singer and then having that resonate with the R&B community and then that mixing in oh man it's like sonically crazy and then you have remixes so you got Fortet and or Pharaoh Sanders and Floating Points what a record what a record you know and so you just have these combinations happening man so who knows what's gonna happen Uh, thank you so much, King Brit, for sharing your thoughts and reflections with me for Lost and Sound today. Um, connecting up San Diego in California with Kreuzberg in Berlin on April the 26th, 2021. Definitely, 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 definitely given me some things to research, to think about, to re-examine some previous assumptions that I'd had from, from speaking with him there. And so thank you so, so much, King Brit, for sharing your thoughts over the last hour. Um, as mentioned, there are a series of performance workshops this week. If you're listening to this episode on the week it comes out and you're interested, you can purchase tickets. Um, I'll put a link. Uh, it's Blacktronica Presents Sound for Humanity. I will put a link to it on the podcast description. I hope you're having an amazing one. And I really look forward to speaking to you soon. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Lost and Sound is written and produced by me, Paul Hanford. Title music by ESO. And a big thanks to Kieran Yates in the UK for mastering the levels. And this episode is being hosted by Bear Radio. And you can check out other English language podcasts from Berlin by going on bearradio.org. And if you enjoyed listening, please subscribe and leave a comment. It really does help. And also, if you wish, you can help the production costs of Making Lost and Sound by buying me a digital coffee at coffee.com. There is a link in the socials. Take care and speak to you soon.